Before we begin our Torah study this morning, let's pray together. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who sanctifies us with his commands and commands us to engross ourselves in the words of Torah. Amen. And by the way, the rest of the children are dismissed for their Shabbat school. So we will see you all later. We want to continue with the theme that we have been exploring, the theme about hospitality and the, the life of faith. There is a connection between hospitality and spirituality, and it should be something that gets our attention, um, I think, throughout the year, but especially it's good to pay attention at, at Passover. When we think about Passover, we often focus on the history and the important events. They're, they're extremely important. Everyone should know the Passover story. And we should know it in depth from the first Passover to the Passovers that are described throughout the uh, rest of the Tanakh that include renewal times and restoration times. I'll, I'll describe some of that uh, a little later this morning. We should also know the story of Yeshua's Passover and the Passover of his Talmudim and the teachings that they have. In fact, I would dare say that it's impossible to fully appreciate or even to understand all the dimensions of Yeshua's death, burial, and resurrection without knowing the story of Passover. His, his redemptive sacrifice took place during Passover for a reason. It was absolutely and inseparably connected to the redemption from slavery out of Egypt. And the idea that Yeshua is the Passover lamb means something. It, it doesn't mean he's the Easter ham. <laughs> and he has no connection to the Easter bunny. Yeah, now I'm stirred up. <laughs> In a good way. In a good way. Because also, at Passover time, Christians all over the world are going to be celebrating the resurrection of the Jewish Messiah. And you and I should be well prepared to have good dialogue with everyone about everything. We shouldn't be, um, we shouldn't be unprepared, and nor should we be uh, out of sorts. So the best way to communicate with people is in language that they understand and to make connections that are simple and clear. I remember once I was asked to celebrate um, the Lord's Supper communion at a, an Episcopalian church. And they, they had their ways that were really clear. They ironed their um, tablecloths, they had creases, on everything. They had a special ministry that prepared um, all these details and they did everything just so. So when, when the rector asked me to lead this, uh, this moment, I said, I don't know how to do it your way. And he said, don't worry, just do it your way. And I said, uh oh. <laughs> Uh, 
And so I just started with something simple, which is, um, I'm so glad to be here with you, but I don't really know all of your ways, but let me tell you, when I lift up the cup and I partake of this bread, I'm thinking of the Passover Seder that Yeshua was at when he introduced all this. And you know what happened? The rector had uh, a mental explosion of a good sort. It's like, boom! And afterwards, he told me more, but when I was finished just introducing and preparing everybody, he got up before the congregation and said, this is so important. What we're doing is connected to Passover and the Jewish Messiah. And he said, and I never really thought about it <laughs> until now. And I thought, wow. Sometimes it's good not to know how to do things, but to be prepared in your spirit so that it's not a confrontation, it's not a conflict, it's a joy. And it surely was a joy. I have only fond memories from that experience. Well, it's so important to grasp the ministry of Messiah and to understand the way that, that God uses resurrection life for our good, to understand how he can redeem us and how he purchases us. And Passover is a time to reflect on that, that we have been bought, we have been purchased, we have been paid for, we have been bought out of slavery from Egypt. And this was preparation for another purchase where Yeshua, the Passover lamb, pays the price so that we can be purchased out of slavery to sin and to death, where we become free in Messiah. Passover is a holiday of freedom, and so it's important for us to recognize this freedom, to recognize the historical freedom that continues to reverberate through the millennia, down to this very day where our lives are touched when we think about Passover. It's important as well to think about the freedom that we have in Messiah. And that's why we have to live with freedom. We have to live it, not just know it. We have to live lives that are free in God, free to do everything good. Some people use their freedom in all the wrong ways. Freedom which you could describe as license, license to indulge in sinful behavior, thinking God will surely forgive me. But that's a misuse, even an abuse of freedom. Freedom is really the freedom to do the good that the Spirit of God is leading you into. Freedom to fulfill the things that God has spoken that are in the scriptures that apply to you. Freedom to take God to heart and to allow him to be central to your life and not secondary in any other way. Freedom to do all the things that you yearn to do and to be. Are there things about yourself that you want to grow up some more? I'm not the only one. I know I'm not because I know all of you and, <laughs> and I know me and you know me. There's more for us, we yearn for more, we desire more. And so at Passover, we, 
we're doing something that's really powerful. We're focusing on what God has done in order to encourage us about what God can do and what he will do in us. And we make it our story, not someone else's story, so that everything that happened in the past directly applies to us and is meaningful to us. We have to know the Passover story. We have to know the details. We should be so familiar with it that we can make it understandable to little children, to old folks, to make it understandable and interesting to people who have a short attention span and those who have a long attention span, to new believers and to people who have been walking with the Lord for a long time. I've been celebrating Passover since uh, I was a little, little one. So at least 60 Passovers in my, I know a lot more than that because many years we celebrate more than one Passover. So I dare say at, at least 100, 120, 150 Passover seders in my experience. And uh, sometimes I have to get a refreshed view of Passover. But I love to do it. I love to see Passover renewed in my life because only if it's renewed in my life can it be useful for anybody else. This year I've been thinking not just about how important uh, the celebration of Passover is, but how Passover is connected to hospitality. And I, I think about this, we, we know the importance of the Passover story and all that was accomplished for redemption from slavery in Egypt. We know the story of Yeshua's redemption for us. But we don't always think about all the details that are connected to hospitality. And I want to draw your attention to that because it's impossible really to experience the fullness of Passover without experiencing hospitality in your life. The Passover Seder is really built around acts of hospitality. When you think about um, having a meal together, preparing a place together, making it useful and interesting and spiritually beneficial, it takes a lot of work. It, in fact, there are times I've talked about it recently where Sandy and I would be in our classic annual argument. <laughs> about one thing we could always argue, how many people to invite. <laughs> And there were times when I really didn't care how many chairs we had or how big our table was. I had to invite certain people and it was always too many, it seemed. But we negotiated that and somehow we made it work. And uh, there are stories to tell about the times when we had many people and we uh, experimented with foot washing or with cooking a whole lamb outside over fire. If you were at the uh, class this week, you heard some of those stories. And they're good stories, but uh, you won't hear them tonight, today. I wanna focus on hospitality and the connection, but before I do, I wanna, I wanna draw your attention to something, because this may help you understand my perspective. I think when we're preparing for Passover, we want to we want to take inspiration from the very first Passover. 
which was unique. It was unique in this respect. It was the actual experience by which Israel was redeemed from slavery. All subsequent Passovers have been times of remembering, recalling, to some degree reenacting that first Passover. But there was no Passover like that first Passover, where the children of Israel did what God called them to do, and they obeyed faithfully the instructions that they were given. They were told that there would be a 10th plague. This would be the plague that claimed the lives of firstborn sons, regardless of their age. Let's just illustrate that. Um, if you're a firstborn son, would you just stand up right now? Yeah, and not one of you is all that young. <laughs> if you're thinking about baby firstborns, right? But, now you are young at heart. <laughs> yeah, I know the teenagers and the college age kids are saying, hey, I, I'm younger than that other guy. No, what I mean is when we hear the term firstborn son, we may be thinking of babies or those who are one, two years old, something like that. But firstborn sons of every age were uh, vulnerable at this point. What was Israel told to do? One of the most important details we should be very familiar with. They were told to take the blood of the lamb and to apply it to the doorposts of their house and then to remain inside. They had to fulfill the other obligations as well, the sacrifice of the lamb, the roasting of the lamb, the eating of the lamb, together with matzah and with bitter herbs. But they remained inside and they waited. It was a time, it was a vigil, you could say. And it was households and neighbors together staying inside, waiting for that moment when the Lord would come bouncing like a lamb through a field, thus we get the term Pesach. It speaks of a lamb that bounds through a field. The Lord would come through the land looking for the blood of the lamb. He was looking for the faith and the faithfulness that was expressed this way. And wherever he saw this blood, he stopped and protected that house as the destroyer was coming through to claim the firstborn sons. And he forbade the destroyer, he stopped the destroyer from coming into that house. The, the Hebrew is much more aggressive and active than the word Passover uh, may communicate in English. Passover to us sometimes sounds like skip over, like he ignored, but that's not it. The Lord was present, the Lord was protective, he personally protected each of the houses that had the blood of the lamb. And when we grasp that, we can appreciate more what it means to experience redemption from sin and from death through Messiah. This other redemption is also meant for households, yes, and for all of Israel, yes, but it is experienced at the individual level necessarily without individuals giving their lives to the Lord, then families won't give their lives to the Lord. And as well, the whole nation won't give its life. Well, I want you to turn 
with me to a passage in 2 Kings. Chapter 22, I hope. This wasn't actually in my notes, but I wanted to... uh, I wanted to bring this to your attention. So 2 Kings chapter 22 talks about King Josiah who was a child king who brought restoration to Israel. Verse three says, in the 18th year of his reign, so that locates the time. And then verse eight, I wanna draw your attention to this. Then Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the scribe, I have found Sefer Torah. Hasefer Torah, the scroll of the law in the house of the Lord, exclamation point. And he gave it to Shaphan who read it. And then verse 11, when the king heard the words of the Torah, he tore his clothes. And thus began a time of renewal and a time of restoration for Israel and when we go to the next chapter, we, we see what happens. Chapter 23, verse one, the king summoned all the elders of Jerusalem and Judah and he went up to the house of the Lord with all the people of Judah and Jerusalem, as well as the priests and the prophets, all the people small and great. And in their hearing, he read all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. And as you read on, what you'll see is that this rediscovery of the scriptures, this rediscovery of the word of God that had been given to Israel brought about restoration and renewal because the hearts of the people were ready, they were ready to take the word to heart and to do it. The traditions of Israel at that point were not enough to keep Israel. And so this helps us understand that the oral traditions and the experience of Israel was not enough. The word of God was what brought renewal and restoration. The restoration of the reading of the word and the taking it to heart. This was the key to Israel's renewal. They didn't even celebrate Passover correctly or fully up until that time. It had been lost in some ways or diminished in some ways. We don't know all the details, but we know this, that what had become the customs of the people were not adequate. And the reading of the word touched people so deeply that they dropped everything, they changed their schedules, they adjusted their expectations, and they said, we've got to start doing what we're reading about. When you think about the ways that God works, he works through the reading of the word and the hearing of the word and the leadership of the Holy Spirit. He works when people join together with faith and and faithfulness and when they form communities that are faithful to God and they decide we are going to do what we read about. We're gonna take this to heart. Now it's very important as we're preparing for Passover, that we take some simple things to heart, that it's good for us to gather together to prepare a Passover meal together, 
to celebrate in our homes, however simply we may do it or basically we may do it, it's good to do it. And there's food to be eaten. The original story goes that it's roasted lamb, that it is um, matzah, and that it's bitter herbs as well. Preserved in the Haggadah, the traditional Haggadah, is some understanding of how that worked in times even during the time of Yeshua, the section called Korech, which says in the Hebrew something very clear, and that is that Hillel would take matzah, lamb, and bitter herbs and eat them together, thus the name the Hillel sandwich. And he would do it together. The English has been corrupted um, because of traditions that have developed in the Ashkenazi world, and it leaves out the lamb. Yeah, so the Hebrew's clear, but the English isn't. And so if you're reading, you know, the authorized version of the Haggadah, the Maxwell House Haggadah, <laughs> you will, uh, you'll see that Hillel ate matzah and bitter herbs, and it leaves out the Pesach. And uh, that's just wrong. So at the time of Yeshua, Jews were eating lamb, matzah, and bitter herbs together. Now, interestingly, Sephardic Jews and Mizrahi Jews still eat lamb. Ethiopian Jews were roasting whole lambs over fire, as the Bible said, but there was a, a big conflict. If they wanted to come to Israel, they had to change their ways. And so they agreed to, and then who knows what happened once they got there. <laughs> but when I was growing up, we were told, as Ashkenazi Jews, we do not eat lamb, no one eats lamb. And that was just wrong. I remember something related to this. We had an Israeli friend who was not Ashkenazi in any way, and we served him some haroset, and he looked at it, it's like, what is this? And we said, it's haroset, and he said, no, it's not. And he said, yeah, it is. Now I'm embellishing the story a little bit, but he said, this isn't haroset. And we said, yes, it is. It's how my mother made haroset and how her mother, and so forth. And you know, it's chopped apples, it's a little bit of sweet wine, some cinnamon, uh, maybe some honey, some nuts. And he said, that's not how you make haroset. <laughs> you know, this is true Israeli dialogue. That's wrong, this is right. I mean, in fact, that's Jewish dialogue. And he said, this is not haroset, I'll show you how to make haroset. So, he taught Sandy how to make haroset, which is made with dates and almonds, a little bit of wine, is that right? Anything else? That's it. Yeah, and when you make date haroset and you look at it, it really does look like the mud from which you can make bricks. <laughs> and when you look at Ashkenazi haroset, you've got a stretch. And I remember having, you know, teachers when we were growing up trying to explain to us, well, the little pieces of apple are like the bricks. It's like, nah, that doesn't work. And 
you know, the little Jewish kids in my class, we all go, nah. <laughs> but it turns out that there aren't dates in the lands of the Ashkenazim. You have dates in, uh, all around the Mediterranean, but in Central Europe and Eastern Europe, uh, what's the only fruit that's really available readily, you know, at the end of winter? It's apples, yeah. And so Jews being practical would say, well, we don't have dates, we'll use apples. Then Jews being what we are, we say, well, now this is the correct way to do it. <laughs> and if you don't understand that, you'll get very confused. And also you will think that your, your research is definitive because you found one answer. Until you find at least several answers that contradict each other, you haven't begun to do your research. But think about this, the modern, the modern Passover is a time of gathering together around a meal that has a spiritual focus as well as a food focus. A time to sit together and to eat together, a time to, to talk around the table, to ask questions, to engage in spiritual discussion, to engage everyone of every age who's involved, and to sing songs, to pray, and to include other spiritual elements. This is very important. And you learn to do it by doing it. You can't learn any other way. You can learn some by going to a Passover Seder. That's good. But there is a time when you have to say, for me and for my house, we will learn to do this. And we'll develop our traditions and our customs and our ways of doing it. And as you do that, you'll develop something meaningful and important. Now I wanna to go to another passage in the scriptures. This is in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22. It describes Yeshua's last Passover and some of the events that connect it with hospitality that I think are really interesting for us. They may not be obvious to you on the first reading, but let's go through it. Luke 22, verse seven. Then came the day of matzah, on which the Passover lamb was to be sacrificed. And remember this, what we call Passover really joins together two holidays, the, the Pesach and the Matzah, the holiday of Matzah as well. And they're united into one, into one um, holiday now. Then came the day of Matzah on which the Passover lamb was to be sacrificed. And Yeshua sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare for us to eat the Passover. In verse nine, they had one question. Where do you want us to prepare it? This is interesting if you think about hospitality. They didn't say, well, we don't know how to do that. Or that's the women responsibility or anything like that. They only asked this question, where? And Yeshua gave such a Yeshua answer. I love it. This was his answer. When you enter the city, a man carrying a jug of water will meet you. <laughs> Follow him to the house he enters, and then say to the owner of that house, the teacher asks, 
Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And then he will show you a large upper room already furnished, make preparations there. Man. This would not have been for novices. These guys had been with Yeshua in a lot of other settings, a lot of situations. And so they were accustomed to him giving instructions that were, could we call it unusual? Or even outrageous? This is an outrageous thing to say. Where? Well, go into the city. Yeah. There'll be a man carrying a jug of water. Oh, Yeshua, please don't make us do that. (laughs) Can't we go to Publix? Can't we? Why does everything always have to be strange with you, Yeshua? (laughs) And the Lord in some way has already organized some parts, but the experience required for his disciples has this edge to it that always is testy. That's just the way he is. And by this point, I think the guys get this instruction and they go, yeah, sounds about right. <laughs> and so they do all the rest. They, they prepare the meal, the lamb, the bitter herbs, the matzah, the wine, which is a later addition, the wine, the cups of wine, is, that's not part of Passover from uh, the Torah, from the original Passover, or from anything in Tanakh that followed. This was an addition, and it's an important addition, but then Yeshua added something else, which was he washed the feet of his disciples. <clears throat> and I think that this, this had many different meanings, but one of them was it, it was provocative about the nature of his leadership. Do you remember that there were many occasions when Yeshua was trying to correct his disciples' view of leadership and authority? And he used metaphors that came from the world of hospitality in order to penetrate. It wasn't always uh, effective all by itself. He had to do this over and over again. One time he said, I came as one who waits on tables because he was trying to communicate something. He didn't come the way people expected. He didn't come uh, doing what people expected a leader to do. He came as one who served at the table. When he washed the feet of his disciples, it was an awkward moment for everyone. And to try to escape that awkwardness, some of the disciples wanted to wash his feet instead. You know, better that we wash your feet, Yeshua. And he said, no, no, no. That's not the way it's gonna be. But I tell you this, in the future, if you do this with each other, you'll be blessed. And so he's trying to teach them something, not by lecture, but by example, that touched the world of hospitality so that they would adjust their view of what real leadership is about. Leaders are servants. Leaders are people who raise other people up. Leaders are those who invest in others, even at their own expense, to bring out the best in those, to to equip them, to develop them. It's important. It's not that leaders are the big bosses. 
leaders or servants. And Yeshua said, if you want to be the greatest in my kingdom, be the servant of all. Learn to serve. Learn to serve at the table. Learn to serve food. Learn to be hospitable. Don't limit it to food. Hospitality touches a lot of things. With that in mind, we see when we read the, uh, the letters of Timothy and Titus and Peter, we see this common understanding among the apostles that hospitality is one of the most important spiritual gifts and fruits. Let's look at some examples. First Timothy chapter three, verse two speaks of overseers and elders. It says the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable. All that sounds understandable from a spiritual point of view, able to teach, but before able to teach, it uses this one word, hospitable. There is a quality of hospitality that's required. And then Titus echoes the same thing and says he must be hospitable. Puts that at the first rank. One who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy and disciplined. Well, holy and disciplined, those are good spiritual words, right? But these are a list of things that have spiritual qualities. So hospitality is a spiritual quality of great importance. And then Peter. Peter in 1 Peter chapter four, Verse nine speaks of qualities for all believers, men and women, be hospitable to one another without complaint. Then in 1 Timothy, there is a description about godly women and how uh, they have a reputation that includes hospitality. It says about them that people should tell about the good things that she has done, that a godly woman has done, raising children, being hospitable taking care of believers' needs, helping the suffering, just as an example. So, so we see that hospitality is foundational, it's essential. It's one of the most important uh, qualities for, um, for spiritual leadership. And so when you're about to get ready to hear the next details, I want you to think about um, hospitality in our life as a congregation and in our lives individually, our, our home life. I was talking to Sandy about, about this theme of hospitality and Passover and, and the connection that I was seeing. And uh, Sandy said that Hospitality starts at the front door. And I thought that is a really good description. It starts at the front door in our synagogues and at the front door in our homes. And uh, I, I have some notes that uh, Sandy wrote that I'm gonna refer to because they really capture something uh, about hospitality. You know, sometimes I can see like a big picture and Sandy sees details. How many of you know she's a detail person? Yes, she is. 
I mean, she can also see big pictures. But she, she gave me this note that when you honor the Lord, you can honor your guest. You can do this together. When, you're, when your front door is welcoming as a synagogue and as a family, it's honorable to the Lord and it's honorable to the people. And that this is a way that you can let the Spirit of the Lord dwell in your midst. And she described to me um, the things that work together to create an atmosphere where the Lord is honored and the people are respected, like friendliness and, and orderliness and, and beauty and shalom. People have come to our house sometimes and, and they say, I feel the peace of God when they're with us. People have come to the sanctuary here and said, I, I feel the peace of God in this place. And you want that. You want to create that. You want to welcome people into the presence of God, whether it's in your house or in the house of the Lord, and we do it together. Now, it may not always be clear, but it takes a lot of different ministries and different people and different actions here at the synagogue to create an atmosphere that's hospitable and to welcome both the Spirit of God and the people of God, from the signage outside to the clean walkways, thanks to those folks who are involved in the ministries that open up the building and that uh, greet people and, and get everything set up and for having a clean and orderly building. And we're so thankful for those who serve in, in the janitorial ministries in the congregation. And even this, you can come on a Saturday and there's someone standing at the door who's happy to see you, welcoming you. And then you take a few more paces and there's some more people. And then you come to the sanctuary and there's someone else at the door ready for you. How many were greeted in this fashion today? It's a blessing, isn't it? Sometimes it feels like we're running the gauntlet. It's like, but you don't understand. I got to get somewhere. <clears throat> no, you got to greet people first. It's so wonderful to have this ministry. And uh, all of you who are serving in the greeters and the hosting ministry, you know, we thank you because you create an atmosphere that helps welcome people. We have orderliness in the sanctuary, everything's in its place. The service coordinators are watching over the order and each ministry involved in the whole service. I'm not gonna outline all the details. I may publish all these details uh, because it's worth looking at in order to see what does it really take and how many people and how many ministries actually work together. And there's no way we can avoid making errors of omission, but it's not by neglect. So even if I publish something and it's got, you know, like four pages of details, we'll miss at least one. So understand um, it's not because we don't value each and every ministry in part, but uh, sometimes on the first take or third take, you just can't get everything right. But I want to try to familiarize you with this because I, I think it'll help you.
the service co coordinator, the run sheet and the order of services prepared in advance. And, and we, have, we have slots and details down to the minutes as to everything um, that needs to happen. It requires the cooperation of the rabbis, the coordinators team, the sound ministry, the podcast ministry, projector team, worship team, the team involved in preparing the Meal of Messiah, the cantoral ministry, the um, talit team, the Torah carrying team, the dance ministry, the lockup ministry, all these ministries are involved. It, it takes everyone working together doing different parts. Even the opening greeting to everyone attending. Uh, the cantoral ministry is practiced and prepared, the Hebrew prayers, and those who are participating in the Torah service have practiced and prepared. Um, the worship team is practiced and they know their parts. It's really great having so many worship teams. I think we have five now. Do we have five worship teams? Yeah, it's incredible. Uh, the rabbis have interfaced with the prayer ministry and the other ministries about announcements. And then we have the message, and sometimes the rabbi has prepared. <laughs> and the service runs smoothly, except when it doesn't. <laughs> now, it really does run smoothly. With this many people involved, it runs really, really smoothly. And everyone always has a good attitude and good nature about uh, working together. And uh, figuring out what to do if something doesn't work. The Shabbat school teachers have prepared themselves and the lessons for the children. Uh, instructions are even given about parents of toddlers. It's time to get your toddlers, don't, don't leave them. No, it's not time right now. No, no, do not go get your toddlers right this minute. And even the idea that the service has an identifiable ending, we typically end with the ironic benediction and we close that way. I have been at some services and uh, they just sort of slow down. And people are looking around like, well, is it over? <laughs> I've been at weddings and funerals like that too. And it's awkward. It's better if you know what's happening, including the ending. And so we try to make that understandable. We think it's helpful for um, visitors and for new people, but for everybody. We even talk about what's next. Sometimes we'll say, we've got an Oneg next door. So gather your stuff and go next door to the Shalom Center. Don't leave your stuff here. That helps people be oriented. And then we've got um, the lockup ministry that locks up the buildings and sets the alarms. Isn't it great to have those people working and doing this ministry? I mean, I'm glad that three of you <laughs> consider that valuable. Yeah, we gotta amp that somehow. We've got a great committee for the smooth running of the Shalom Center, and we've got a great uh, coordinator in the ministry, Tracy A. Bush, with the able assistance and support of her husband, Steve. You guys are doing a great job. They work together. They work together so that we have ONAG sometimes, which are 
very elaborate and sometimes are very simple. We have teams that have been trained that, that know how to prepare food, how to set it out in place. We have furniture that's in order. We have people that put the furniture right back where it goes so that every chair is where it needs to be, every table is where it needs to be. The building's kept clean. Uh, the servers are there to greet people when they come into the building and the food is prepared and it's served. When we had the foremans here with us recently, they were reviewing one of the details. It's like, so you've got four lines that people can go through to get food. It's like, yeah, you noticed. We have two sets of tables and there's access on both sides. And you might be a beneficiary of that and not realize that someone thought about that and people work together to make that work well. And foods are consolidated as time goes on so that uh, the latecomers still have access to food. Those are details that may have escaped you, but they didn't escape someone's attention. People are paying attention. And in this way, we avoid something. And that is when you have like one line and a rush of people, the people at the end of the line may have to wait 30, 40 minutes. And now our, our service is just so wonderful. People go through and they quickly can get uh, served and enjoy themselves. And that's the result of people working together and paying attention. But think about this, the water that you drink. Have you been over there and you've got one of those nice spiffy little Zephyr Hill spring water bottles? Yeah, well, those had to be inventory. They had to be purchased. They had to be uh, brought here, loaded into storage, and then set out for people to drink and then refilled. That stuff doesn't happen automatically. It happens because people pay attention to hospitality. They pay attention to making others feel really great and, and feeling well taken care of. You see, hospitality is not just doing what you like to do, it's doing what's useful for other people. It's making them feel comfortable. Now, I had a funny experience with hospitality that I shared last night. I'll, I'll, I'll try to close with this. In the early years when we were traveling in Ukraine, um, we were staying with uh, a, a woman who was just so gracious to host us, and she was doing her best uh, to take care of us. And for breakfast one morning, she served sardines. Now up to that point, I had successfully avoided sardines <laughs> for my entire life. And I remember looking at them and, and I just decided, okay, I'm gonna eat the sardines. And so I ate the sardine and, you know, I joked last night that my first comment was, well, this is the best sardine I've ever had. <laughs> I didn't actually say that, but um, it was actually tasty. And to my surprise, I thought, this is tasty, this is good. And so I said, what kind of sardines are these? And it turned out they were from Riga. These are the best uh, from the area around the Baltic Sea in, in, uh, in Latvia. And they were just tasty. So I said, 
these are good, thank you. You know, yum. And I ate them. Well, hospitality being what it is, the people of Ukraine are very hospitable. From that point on, almost everywhere I went, <laughs> sardines. Sardines. And I can truly say, I now love sardines. I no longer avoid them, but I can tell the difference between really good ones and just so-so ones. I recommend the really good ones. But I can eat them with gusto and enthusiasm. That first person who served me sardines had a desire to be hospitable. And it was a sacrifice for her. It was an expense for her. The second, third, fourth served sardines because they wanted to, to do something special for me according to what they understood. So be careful when you say yum <laughs> about something. You may get more of it. <laughs> you may get more. But I'm so grateful for that kind of hospitality, the experience of being with people of all different kinds in their homes. And um, the experience of creating a home here as a synagogue family and welcoming people and making them feel welcome. This is so important for us. And I wanna close with this idea that this Passover is a wonderful time to express hospitality. It's a wonderful time to experience hospitality, to show hospitality, and to connect it spiritually with your life of faith. The, the time of Passover is specially designed for this, and it's designed for all ages. It's designed as a dialogue of faith and hospitality, of redemption in real life that all the generations can participate in. So gather your young, gather your old, gather your friends and your neighbors, and invite them into your house, even for the most simplest or the most elaborate experience. But make it something special for yourself that reflects who you are and the heart that God has given you for Messiah and for the great redemption he's accomplished for us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for being a redemptive God and taking care of us in such powerful ways. Thank you for giving us experience that allows us to celebrate your goodness in times past, your goodness today, and your goodness in the times to come. Let it be, Lord, that we use this Pesach to share the good news of your kingdom, the kingdom of your beloved son, Yeshua, and of your faithfulness in Messiah through whom all the promises of God are yea and amen. In Yeshua's name we pray. Amen. We're going to close with Aaron's blessing. I ask you to stand up, and if you're standing by yourself, please move just a little so that you're not by yourself. Yivarechacha Adonai v'yishmarecha. Ye'er Adonai p'navelecha v'yichunecha. Yisa Adonai p'navelecha v'yasemlecha. Shalom. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep watch over you and protect you. The Lord cause the light of his face to shine upon you. The Lord be gracious to you. 
the Lord lift up his face to you and give you his peace in the name of Yeshua, the Prince of Peace. Amen. Shabbat Shalom.